0: Hello and welcome to the Arms Control Poser podcast. My name is William Albert, Director of Strategy, Technology, and Arms Control at the International Institute for Strategic Studies in Berlin. I will be your host as we explore the world of arms control. On each podcast, I will interview the great and the good of the arms control community about a current event related to a treaty or agreement, past, present, or only proposed. Then together, we will go, hopefully, deep enough on the history and functioning of the agreement to help you make sense of it all. And well, that's the idea anyway. This podcast is funded by the European Union Non-proliferation and Disarmament Consortium. Now let's get underway. And welcome to the podcast. Today, my special guest, Sahil Shaw. he is the Senior Fellow and Program Manager at the Council on Strategic Risks. Sahil, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, William. Uh, thank you for being here. And today, uh, you know, what is the central issue for today that you want to talk
1: about? Well, I think over the past year or so, or perhaps the last few years, we've had an increased attention given to nuclear risk reduction. Um, in a world where a lot of people are saying that arms control is dead, uh, a lot of attention has refocused on the perhaps less formal measures or unilateral steps that countries can be taking to offer restraint and reassurance um, to try to prevent nuclear war.
0: So the threat then that we're really addressing is nuclear war, which obviously something back in all the headlines and not just for the movie that everyone's seen. Of course, I'm referring to Barbie. No, of course, Oppenheimer. Um, But also the return to nuclear rhetoric, uh, Russia making huge nuclear threats, Trump when he was in office. Threatening fire and fury, North Korea, uh, Iran, all, China building all these new uh, missile silos and, and refurbishing its entire nuclear arsenal. So it does appear that nuclear threats are a big deal. So, what Tools do we have to manage these risks? You mentioned risk reduction. What are we specifically talking about?
1: Here? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, of course, at the end of the day, the total elimination of nuclear weapons would be really the only way to fully eliminate the risks uh, brought about by them. But the question right now is, you know, what are the tools that we have in a period where we don't fully have strategic stability or an architecture that is guaranteeing strategic stability in a a stable way. Um, But instead, we're in a world where we need to figure out how to manage strategic instability. Um, How do we make sure that we cover all the potential threat vectors that could lead to nuclear use, whether that's intentional use, uh, use by miscalculation, accidental use, unauthorized use, and of course, all these different types of use or potential threat vectors require different risk reduction tools to try to ensure that they don't happen. But not only that, but to make sure that if something does happen um, along any of those lines, that we have a way of ensuring that we don't climb up the escalation ladder and produce even more catastrophic consequences um, than
0: needed. Well, there's there's one issue that we have, uh, which I would say is an important one as long as nuclear weapons exist, the system of deterrence that we have is an important tool to prevent war because, I mean, I think certainly there are South Koreans who would tell you that North Korea wants to attack them. And so they're using conventional deterrence and extended deterrence to try to prevent North Korea from thinking it can attack. So it, so while managing these risks is really important, as long as nuclear weapons exist, we can't make that threat completely disappear. It is necessary to have some threat, um, uh, the threat that leaves something to chance in order to prevent the wider evil, which would be, you know, global nuclear war.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, it's, it's a very, it, we're in a very interesting period of time in which a lot of people are rethinking the sort of core tenants that have underpinned deterrence policy for, for so long. And you know, one colleague said to me recently that we feel like we're at a roulette table and we're spinning that roulette wheel. And every time it doesn't land on that green double zero, we win money. And we've been spinning it for 70 years, winning money, all while assuming that it's never going to, you know, come up zero and you can see the zeros on the board, it, it can happen. You know, we know it can happen, that nuclear use can happen. Um, but it hasn't happened yet. Um, since of course, uh, the episodes in the movie that you're discuss- that you referenced earlier in Oppenheimer, and of course the large range of nuclear testing that also has occurred, um, in the past. But we're deriving benefits from this system of nuclear deterrence. But if it hits zero, we lose everything, right? We lose our entire stack of, of chips in a way. So I think putting the guardrails up to ensure that we can have confidence, um, not only in our own policies, but in and incentivizing others to have policies that really restrain us um, from playing the spinning this wheel of roulette in a way that um, could produce really dangerous consequences is is of of real importance. Um, you know and right now we in talking about eliminating nuclear weapons, we don't really have prospects for reducing strategic arsenals you know we don't really have prospects for, um arms control. but hopefully we can get to a place where we can talk about reducing deployed strategic nuclear weapons, you know, non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapons, however you want to um, refer to them, in non-deployed nuclear weapons. Um, but in the meantime, when you ask you know what risk reduction tools do we have, um, we're not talking about those that are necessarily enabling reductions, but those that are maybe enabling more those are enabling less ambiguity, less room for misperception, less room for miscommunication, um, you know, and ensuring that the tools that we do have are continually looked at and renewed and brought up to today's geopolitical and technical realities. And for example, you know, you asked for specifics. Um, One that is very important to me is the crisis communications architecture that we're using and at present, you know, not all nuclear weapons states are linked up uh, at the leader level or even from you know between their militaries. We don't necessarily know how emerging technologies are interacting with current systems that are in place, whether or not the rise of things like AI-generated um, deep fakes could potentially cause a reduction in trust in terms of believing who you're looking at or who you're speaking to on the other end. There's so many things at play um, with that within just that issue of crisis communications, we have so much work to do. And I think that's true um, across the entire toolkit that, that you're referencing.
0: I agree. And, and look, I'm a big supporter of risk reduction tools, but I think we also have to acknowledge that we live in a world where some of the countries that you know, the West uh, might see as an adversary or a competitor view risk very differently than we do. You know, for instance, um, you know, I've, I've been saying for a long time that it appears that Putin has a much higher uh, tolerance for risk. In fact, he, he likes risk as a way to scare us into giving him stuff. So it's really difficult to enter into an arms control discussion with Russia because they'll say, oh, no, no, what are the things that terrify you? We want to do them more. You know what I mean? It's it's, it's a very strange situation. And, you know, I'm also mindful um, that sometimes front-channel communication poses its own conundrums. Uh, you know, there are some countries, for instance, you know, you think of India and Pakistan, where a front-channel communication might have some escalatory risks uh, and I've heard in that region uh, they they prefer back channel communications. So we may be in a situation where where both risk perceptions differ widely, and so the valuation by either sides of a conflict in risk reduction tools might differ, as well as the perception of of what type of tool is useful could vary from region to region. But you know that, that's the, uh, you know I certainly like you to keep that in mind. But let's get more specific. So. Um, For instance, one of the greatest risk reduction tools I can think of, uh, the US-Soviet example, the hotline agreement, uh, which then led to deeper and deeper communications and eventually, in arms control agreements, nuclear risk reduction centers between the US and the Soviet Union and now between the US and Russia, which to this day exchange all kinds of different notifications, whether it's directly bilaterally or also the US uses it for UN notifications and OSCE notifications. So, do you think um, the risk reduction centers could be a useful tool? You know, the sort of twenty four seven manned political military center at the State Department and at the Ministry, I think, of Foreign Affairs or is it Ministry of Defense in Moscow, um, being able to communicate directly through electronic communications plus direct leader to leader hotlines. Do you think that's a good model, or what do you think of, of, of those as tools?
1: I think you know as tools they are fantastic because they create this institutional memory over time, and they create procedures that enable that even in times where there is tension, or in times when uh, there isn't necessarily official communication between, say, diplomats or governments that we still can have a baseline knowledge of what the other side is doing to whatever extent that they're able to exchange notifications through those centers, that that's possible. But also so that both sides can stay in touch to clarify if anything um, is potentially looking off key to the other side. So the importance of the NERCS or the nuclear risk reduction centers, especially in the case of US and Russia, is that the US has never been out of communication with Russia as a result of having these institutions. You know, stress tests have been sent every couple of hours for the other side to confirm that it is staffed and working. There's direct phone connectivity In the U.S., you have Russian-speaking watch officers, and in, in Russia, you have obviously English speakers. And this is from the inception of these centers. And this makes it possible, of course, for both sides to not just exchange, say, notifications that they've agreed to formally exchange, such as those under treaties like New START, but for other things to be exchanged as well that aren't necessarily dictated by agreements or treaties. And these are those sort of ad hoc or goodwill messages. Um, and those can be sent on any topic, right? Say during 9 11, the US wasn't able to send messages because of the, the terrorist attack that occurred. And the Deputy Secretary of State turned to the NERC to send a missed message to the Russian MOD. Wow. and. When the U.S. said during that period that it was moving its threat posture to a DEF CON 3 status, they wanted to clarify and reassure Russia that that was not directed towards them or as a result of any sort of perception of Russian behavior. So this is a really key example, obviously, that we have this option. It is a tool. Leadership is aware that it exists and that there is value beyond just the structured formal notifications that are, are, are exchanged through them. It's really a way, a resilient way for nuclear weapon states like the US and Russia, and potentially say China, the UK, France, and others, if they're able to develop them, to stay connected in a way that is resilient um, and that there are redundancies for. So for example, with uh, the NERC in the US, there's redundancy via not just undersea cables, but also satellites. There's also multiple locations to ensure continuity of operations. There's multiple circuits involved. And this is really important at a time when we don't know whether, say, the hotlines that exist between leaders outside of more institutionalized places like NERCS um, would necessarily work uh, in a crisis um, when or in a degraded environment where more traditional uh, communication methods could be wiped out uh, or could take a hit.
0: That's really interesting, yeah, yeah, because I'm I'm aware there are two hotlines between India and Pakistan, but uh, in the Brahmos missile crisis where um, uh, India had a misfire of a Brahmos missile and it flew on a pre-programmed trajectory and crashed into, fortunately, in the middle of nowhere in Pakistan, it didn't kill anyone. Um, they actually didn't use either of their hotlines, and that was a, a real uh, cause of some c- contention and consternation, and is still causing scratched heads for, among analysis, uh, analysts in terms of the value of uh, a hotline in this circumstance. Um, and as you point out, there's there's no real clarity. I d- certainly don't know what the uh, mechanics, what the technical basis of the hotlines are, how resilient they are. Um, do you have any uh, Do you have any insight on the India Pakistan hotline agreements? Yeah, yeah I'd,
1: I'd love to talk about those. Um, you know, in terms of India Pakistan, of course, when people think of hotlines, they usually either think of the U.S. Russia uh, famous, you know, Red Telephone, although there isn't really a Red Telephone, or they think about um, India and Pakistan. And people generally think of South Asia as a place where we've had these hotlines and they've been agreed to at a high level, but really they've not. Been used, and at many points they've actually been turned to as a way of telling the other side, um, we don't want to deal with you by you know turning them off. Um, so again, the resilience uh, of the hotlines in South Asia are very questionable. You've got the Foreign Secretary hotline, and then you have the DGMO one, which is really geared towards the line of control, and right. you know there those were before um, operated over over overland transmission lines and they used kind of copper wiring and whatnot. And there was a lot of noise as a result and frequent breakdowns. So in around 2005, it was agreed to update it to a fiber optic link. And that was for the the new hotline between the foreign secretaries that was meant to be established, but also um, for, for the DGMO one. And The foreign secretary one was actually specifically meant to be geared towards nuclear de-escalation, but it's never been Mm -hmm. used. And Mm -hmm. the only one that is routinely used is the DGMO hotline. But when the Brahmos incident occurred, um, you know, every Tuesday they're meant to speak, you know, exchange pleasantries at the very least. But even then, that didn't happen. So fortunately for the region and for the world, really, this Brahmos incident occurred in a relatively calm environment. You know, There's a ceasefire along the line of control, agreed a year earlier that was holding ground and wasn't being violated. But in reality, you know, had the circumstances been different, which we know they could have easily been considering the history of the subcontinent, um, things could have played out very differently um, when it comes to the Brahmos incident. Wow.
0: Are there other examples of hotline agreements between nations?
1: Yes, uh, there are hotline agreements. And my colleagues actually at the Institute for Security and Technology based in San Francisco put together an atlas of hotlines, um, which I'm sure we can link to uh, in the information for the the episode, um, which really is a beautiful visual representation of where there are hotlines and, you know, where nuclear armed states in particular are connected and where they are not. Um, one other example probably that is worthwhile mentioning are the huge amount of hotlines that exist between South Korea and North Korea. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I think There are at some points I mean, dozens um, that have been put in place on various issues. But again, similar to South Asia, these hotlines are seen not necessarily as an enduring risk reduction tool that should be protected at all costs, but sometimes a way to manipulate risk and to play with the other side by saying, we're turning that hotline off. So when you spoke earlier and you said to keep in mind that we have differences amongst adversaries really across the board when it comes to the value of risk reduction, what actually reduces risk, um, hotlines fit neatly, into that because a lot of countries are skeptical of taking on hotlines or using them because they feel like they're not really a tool for good faith de-escalation or communication, but a tool to uh, manipulate. And therefore, a a show of force for them is to turn them off in a crisis as opposed to actually using them.
0: Right. And this is the big concern I think we have uh, regarding China. Um, you know, China, who explicitly has said that any risk reduction tool with the United States would simply allow the United States to do what it wants, and it wants to be able to intimidate the U.S. into not doing things like freedom of uh, navigation maneuvers. Um, so, so, so it refuses to enter into risk reduction discussions with the United States. That strikes me as kind of a, a high hurdle to clear in terms of making the world a safer
1: place. Absolutely. And I'm so glad that you brought this up. Um, Interestingly, there has been recent news reports that when it comes to uh, the obvious desire that the U.S. has made very clear at the highest levels to have better communication with China, The one concrete channel that has been mentioned in recent weeks that may be under development or under discussion is indeed on maritime issues, um, which, you know, which is which is interesting. But when it comes to nuclear risk reduction um, and in hotlines geared towards that, you're right. China has been quite resistant. They've been resistant even in recent months in P5 discussions specifically on that topic. And that's because there is this sort of chicken and egg situation that has emerged when it comes to risk reduction. On one hand, within the NPT context, we obviously have five nuclear weapon states. Of course, there are are more nuclear armed states than those within the NPT. But within those five, you've got the P3, so the US, the UK, and France, saying that we need concrete risk reduction to enable ourselves to be in an environment in which we can make progress towards our treaty obligations towards disarmament, but also to get to a point where you know arms control is, is possible again. The other side says, well, no, we don't need risk reduction to get to a better security environment. We need to change the security environment before we feel comfortable to agree to any risk reduction steps, any formal steps. So you've got two opposing views at play. And the hope is that these are incompatible at the moment, but don't become irreconcilable. And I think the only way to do that is to really talk about what the origins of risks are, how these countries view the risk landscape and where the risks are coming from and trying to identify any common ground that is possible and to do at least some cooperative technical work to outline, say, you know, even if we can't agree to a hotline between the U.S. and China on whatever issue, if we were to, to develop something along those lines, how would both sides see potential negative secondary or tertiary effects of using those kinds of tools? You know, So really doing the deep thinking to pull out the anxieties and ontological insecurities that exist around these tools and then thinking of like how we do informal arms control, how can we put in the necessary verification and, um, you know, protocols and other things around these risk reduction measures to alleviate those concerns as much as possible. And, you know, Mike Tyson once said that, you know, everyone has plans until they get punched in the face. So, you know, we really do need to think about how if we intentionally or unintentionally end up in a crisis, how we enable responsible deescalatory restrained behavior, whilst feeling under pressure and threat, and the Chinese in particular, and they wrote this in a paper submitted to this year's uh, preparatory committee meetings for the NPT, they say, we don't want to focus on crisis management, we want to focus on crisis avoidance. But What we say to that is that really the same tools you'd use to manage a crisis, you would use to avoid a crisis. The difference is, is, that say with hotlines, which you would use to avoid a crisis, if you're in a crisis, you have to make sure that hotline is crisis proof, that it can exist and work in a degraded environment, that you feel like you can still trust it even at a time when trust has taken a huge hit because you're in some sort of a crisis or conflict.
0: This is a good place to take a pause. We're gonna come back in just a second with Sahil Shaw. You're listening to the Arms Control Poser podcast hosted by William Opper And I think, I, I mean, I think that's all very important and I think you and I really understand that. Um, but you know, the Chinese, again, would say the best way to avoid any risk is for the US to just do whatever we tell them to do and then no crisis. Which you know uh, is kind of rewarding the rewarding the bully for bullying behavior um and you know it strikes me that both with China and with Russia, it's almost like we're dealing with nineteen sixty one like pre Cuban missile crisis leaders who who don't even seem to want don't even seem to care about avoiding the potential for accidental war or inadvertent escalation i mean that's something that I think Kennedy and Khrushchev learned very personally in a very visceral way. Do you think we have to go through a crisis like that? Or do you think these kinds of cooperative measures of teaching China about the, the need for resilient communication might be able to clue them in that, that maybe this isn't the right way to go and that, and that they do actually want to try to manage risks rather than elevate risks? Do, do you think, do you see any shoots of hope there? in terms of China or Russia uh, being able to take up that kind of discussion? Interestingly,
1: you know, China actually does exchange some level of notifications and has communication with Russia. And, you know, I think that we often focus on the U.S.-Russia experience, U.S.-Soviet experience. But I think incentivizing um, China to be more transparent with how they do risk reduction with Russia would be really interesting to the US, the UK and France. And I think what I'm trying to say is that everybody has done risk reduction in some way. Everybody has taken on unilateral measures and done things to ensure that their nuclear arsenals are as safe and secure as possible, to ensure that there are the necessary measures in place to ensure safe command and control, to ensure that those who uh, exist um, on the other side of the table, that adversaries um, are not vulnerable to misperception or miscommunication. So everybody has a story to tell. It's not that we have to necessarily tell and clue in China. I think that we have to basically really find a way to say that the world is expecting us as nuclear armed states to take our responsibilities under the NPT and also to our own public seriously, that they are in a world where we don't really foresee there being formal arms control, going to expect us to be doing this important work to reduce the risks of nuclear war and that you know we have made obligations to do that and that we have to do it. Um, and I think... The best way possible is to keep the P5 process energized. And of course, one interesting thing is that the Russians are now taking over that process from the U.S. And the U.S. has very expertly navigated, despite the ongoing war in Ukraine, a way to keep dialogue on risk reduction going
0: through that format. So this is the P5 format, which is one of the subformats coming out of the NPT treaty, right? The nuclear weapon states uh, of the NPT um, having dialogue on nuclear weapons and and how they're managing uh, nuclear risk and disarmament, correct?
1: Yes, exactly. So this process is about now 15 years old, and this process has really come out um, of the need for nuclear weapon states to have more formalized structured dialogue on issues surrounding the NPT and for them to come up with uh, coordinated positions and progress on different obligations. So uh, for example, in the last NPT cycle, not only was risk reduction and doctrinal transparency a working stream, a work stream, but also you had discussions on difficult topics like the Fissile Material Cutoff Treaty, the Bangkok Treaty. Um, peaceful uses of nuclear energy and technologies um, and and other issues. And what this has allowed then is for teams from P5 governments across either their capitals or in Vienna and Geneva to have a structured process in which they can talk about these issues so that when you get to that review conference every five years, that the P5 are in a better position to be able to offer more and to be able to offer something positive rather than to have dis, disparate positions on these topics.
0: And Russia's chairing that process now of taking over from the U.S., as you mentioned.
1: That is correct. Russia is now chairing that process. The process has been reduced um, under the U.S. coordinator role really to only to risk reduction and to doctrinal transparency. There are indications that Russia may try to expand the process again to try to cover other topics. Um, But for now, we know that they are over and that this month, they are meant to be presenting their kind of vision or work plan to the rest of the P5 in New York on the sidelines of the first committee meetings. Naturally, nothing happens smoothly, um, and there have been reports in the past few days that the Russian principal for this p5 work did not receive a u.s visa to come to New York to attend the first committee meetings mm-hmm. so you know of course, there's so much complexity in terms of keeping dialogue alive due to ongoing dire circumstances, especially surrounding the war in Ukraine. And this has meant that the P5 over the past year have had to find third countries to meet in. They've had to meet in Dubai, they've had to meet in Cairo. Um, So it's not gonna be easy, but in the same way that the United States had had to manage a way forward, Russia is gonna have to find a way to take leadership and manage a way forward. And after that, then China will be chairing the process. So I mentioned this because I think that when China chairs the process, if Russia is able to keep it alive, and help us find more common ground on risk reduction, that by the time China takes over the coordinator role, they may feel more of an obligation or a need to utilize their coordinator role to bring about some actual concrete deliverables, and therefore they could take the credit for it, which I think the others would be fine with them being able to do, because really China is the biggest stumbling block. They have the least amount of interest, the least amount of history and institutional knowledge on this, um, and they they really don't necessarily see the value in the same way as the
0: others. So there's one thing that doesn't get talked about very often, and that I feel like is really important in terms of China's engagement on arms control, is the 1996 and 1997 agreements that they had with Russia, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyz, Tajikistan, and China on reducing forces on their borders. and and there's two of them the 1996 one is more like vienna document and the 1997 one is more like the conventional armed forces in europe treaty complete with inspection protocols reduction periods and at the end of the reduction period of that treaty the actual closing conference for that uh, for the reduction period of the 1997 treaty uh, that was the establishment of the shanghai cooperation organization which appears to be just the perfect way to do arms control you start with a CBM, you go to something that's actually got verification and inspections. Uh, and then, you know, once both sides have confidence that it's been implemented properly, it then turns into a political body to facilitate further cooperation. I mean, it, it's, it's 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 that's pretty perfect. And yet, you know, people do say, oh, well, China doesn't have very much experience with arms control. Well, they've conducted literally hundreds of, of conventional arms inspections. With Russia, as you point out, you know, and, and that we we tend to look at only through like the European lens or the U.S. Russian lens, uh, but nobody really talks that that China has some experience and that they must have a cadre of trained inspectors somewhere <laughs> and negotiators who negotiate these agreements that really understand this. But but I don't see them. I don't hear that from the Chinese. They don't crow about these agreements a lot. They're actually hard to find in English. You have to search uh, uh, Russian or Chinese to find uh, their complete text. I think the '96 agreements on the UN website, but the '97 agreements harder to find uh, unless you search in Russian or Chinese. Do, do you have you do you know about these agreements? Do you follow these? Is this is this something that you know we could perhaps use to talk to China about their experience of arms control? Maybe draw them out a little bit on the topic.
1: Yes, um, you know, I think that there definitely should be a lot more done to look at the relevant experiences in the conventional field. And when it comes to the two agreements that you mentioned, both of them are actually referred to in the charter of the Shanghai Cooperation Organization as having made an important contribution to the maintenance of um, peace, security, and you know stability in the region and in the world. So, Interestingly, yeah. there is attention given to these efforts in the, and there is attention given to their value. Um, but like you said, um, with the benefit of you know, historical hindsight and, and, and hindsight is always twenty twenty. knowing how effective uh, or efficient these types of measures in the conventional field have been um, really comes down to a few things. But of, of most importance is the ability to be transparent. Um, And I think with China, the issue really comes down to an an aversion to transparency. And that transparency also extends to telling the stories of their own risk reduction efforts. Um, I don't think that they take enough credit for the good work that they've done. I don't think that they take enough credit for the good work that they've done, not just necessarily on the conventional side, but on the nuclear side. Um, And they really on the nuclear side just refer to their no first use declaration. But one thing that has been interesting while we've been looking at tactical or non-strategic systems is China's actually shown a lot of restraint um, on that front. And perhaps that's an area in which they should take more credit for or try to find common ground with the others on.
0: Yeah no, I think um, as you point out, I, I do think uh, there needs to be a little bit more communication um, about the history of agreements. I, I think there's a lot that's lost in terms of knowledge. Uh, you know I've personally worked a lot, I think one of the most important risk reduction agreements in existence is the whole set of bilateral agreements known as the avoidance of hazardous incidents on and over the high seas agreements. We know it by the shorter name, INCSI. Uh, The first one was between the US and the Soviet Union, signed in 1972, actually at the summit where they agreed uh, to SALT and ABM. And it's really interesting that in that package you had bilateral nuclear arms control talks, you had bilateral uh, anti-ballistic missile arms control talks and you had a risk reduction and that this was all a package and at the same time the us and the soviets were engaged uh, in 1972 in the talks in Espoo, finland that led to the helsinki final act so european security also on the table it just it strikes me it's really striking that we had all these conversations about different realms at the same time, in order to try to advance stability and security. That it wasn't just one agreement at a time; it wasn't just one domain at a time. That we're actually looking across domains to try to get somewhere with the Soviet Union. And I, you know, I think there's some lessons to be learned from that for today.
1: Absolutely. You know, I think that in my previous role at the European Leadership Network, uh, we had extensive experience in terms of addressing inkskis between NATO states and, and Russia. You know, We recommended that existing agreements had to be reviewed and updated to take in, into account different changes in terms of the technological environment and operational methods, and that for states that did not have inkskis uh, with Russia within NATO to consider negotiating them. And outside of that, what was also interesting was that when it came to um, Inksky's, we thought that there was a lot that perhaps the Middle East in particular could learn from the experience uh, be- experiences between the West and Russia. Um, because like you said, uh, pursuing these steps, hotlines, Inksky's other risk reduction tools did enable wider uh, regional global security conversations that were important and that led to other more formal steps and and processes and agreements so um you know i think the linkages between all of these things are important to keep in mind and it was really really valuable um that you raised that in the way that you did because it shows how when you pursue smaller steps even on a very narrow set of issues, it can open the door and enable wider conversations um, on, on, on a wider array of, of risks that need to be reduced. You know, and
0: on the podcast, uh, our third episode, I had Hannah Nota on, and she and I discussed ACRES, which was the effort to try to take some of these lessons and bring them to the Middle East in the 1990s. And of course, you know, the, that effort didn't come to fruition, but there are still lessons from that um attempt to engage in the Middle East, that hopefully um, her efforts and the efforts of the Vienna Center for Nonproliferation proliferation Disarmament by, by highlighting the oral history of the Acres negotiations, um, you know, we can not lose all of those lessons and, you know, perhaps uh, think again about risk reduction in the Middle East and in other regions uh, like perhaps East Asia.
1: Absolutely. And, you know, I think that We are in a period where we are losing the people that did all of that important work and preserving their experiences and enabling and engendering intergenerational dialogue and exchange of knowledge on what can be learned is so important because now we're in a very different world. Um, There are more nuclear armed states than there were. Uh, There are more risky technologies at play. Um, you know, And I think that we don't really have time to waste or, or to lose when it comes to creating a really thorough baseline in terms of knowing what tools do we have, how have they worked in the past, how have they not worked in the past, and do they fit today's realities or should they be replaced wholly by something different? And that work, I feel, is still in a stage of infancy and really needs to be revitalized by not just nuclear armed states or nuclear weapon states, but by the entire kind of ecosystem that works on these issues, um, because there is value in, like you said, the work that VCDNP and so many other think tanks have been doing over the years, um, specifically on looking at processes that, that looked to reduce Risks.
0: And just to close that conversation out, the INCSI agreements, there's also, um, I think it was 12 allies have INCSIs with Russia, but um, Russia has one with North Korea, and South Korea has one with Russia, and Japan has one with Russia. And I think there's one between, there's something between Russia and China similar to an INCSI. So just to say that that there are these things and, and expanding them and learning lessons from their implementation, not just in the European theater, but in the Asian theater would be really, really interesting in terms of capturing lessons and seeing what can apply. But let me pivot and ask, okay, so where do we go from here? So I think
1: that we have to preserve the limited channels for dialogue that do exist. I think we need to both apply pressure on nuclear weapon states and nuclear armed states to continue to keep this as a priority, but we also have to find ways to positively animate it in our own ways by contributing ideas. So I think that a way forward involves not just preserving diplomacy, but also helping enable it in a positive way. I think that we need to really address the question of, you know, what do we mark ourselves against? What is a measure of success? Um, You know, what is a unit of risk? How do you reduce risk? Um, Especially in a moment like now when there's no formal arms control and disarmament does not seem politically possible, the people are going to expect to see and feel a difference. So what does success look like? You know, continuing dialogue and building the interpersonal relationships and deepening understanding are all foundational, but we need to take concrete steps that actually reduce risk in a meaningful way. And that requires a process. And of course, the process often is even more important sometimes than what the end product is but having those end products in mind. So not just outcomes, but actual outputs. I think that has to be kept in sight. And of course we have, as we've discussed today on the podcast, a really rich history of ideas, uh, to base our discussions on. So it's not as if we're walking into this with no knowledge. The question is really on how do you find common ground and Uh, you know, trying to get away from this chicken and egg issue that I mentioned before is going to be key to that. So how do we get everybody on the same page that risk reduction is valuable and that concrete steps are valuable and that you don't wait for a holistic change in the security environment, which you're probably never going to get in a way that's going to make you feel fully secure to then to then agree to things, you know, And on the opposite end, how do you ensure that what you are putting forward is put forward in a way that actually deals with what concerns Russia and also China have surrounding risk reduction? You know, how are we actually dealing with the anxieties that they have? And how do we not just um, dismiss it as, say, a smoke stream from doing more, um, but you know, really delve into what their, their issues are.
0: Well, I think that's at least somewhat hopeful that we can get there. Uh, And, you know, hopefully at some point, um, Russia and China both move away from operationalizing of risk and try to manage it and, uh, try to see their way to a future of stability and security rather than insecurity and risk. Yeah, I
1: no, I think that, that that nails it. It's just, you know, that we have these big concepts that we've worked with for so many years, whether it's um deterrence, whether it's strategic stability, um and I think we're in a period where we really need to be doing the homework to look at how we think about things um and take into consideration deeply how others think about them as well.
0: Well, that's great. I think we'll leave it there. Sahil Shaw, thank you so much for talking to us today. We're gonna take a break. When we come back in a minute, we're gonna talk about Sahil's career and how he got to be so great. Back in just a sec. Okay, and we're back with part two of the podcast where I ask Shaw some questions about his life his career how he got to where he is today so so tell me this job that you have right now how did you get this job well it's been a long time coming um I've been in the field
1: for about 10 years now and I think that what- oh,
0: you're about what 22 years old so you started when you were 12 that's I'm 28 amazing. I started when I was
1: about 18 oh. um you know, I think getting to this role that I have now um, has required a lot of endurance. Um, it's not necessarily been a process in which there have always been peers around me. I think now we see a lot of young people in the field, but around 10 years ago, um, this wasn't a space that really had a high level of interest. Um, so therefore, I really stumbled into it. Um, and I'm, happy to still be continuing uh, on this journey, but my new role at CSR is really enabling me to look at the overall global arms control and risk reduction architecture and um, try to figure out how we can enable progress uh, in the best way possible.
0: Well, all right, let's, uh, I appreciate the advertisement, but I, I mean, I want to talk more specifically about you. So let's go back when you were 18, how did you stumble into this? Were you always interested in arms control? And so then 18, you had an opportunity and what was that opportunity? Or was this just, you know, one a, a topic that came up? How how do you come to the whole topic of arms control?
1: It's a really great question. So when I was in high school, I did uh, debate, I was a, public forum debater, and often the resolutions that we would be tasked with debating were on foreign affairs issues. And I also have a a very international background. I'm a first-generation American. My parents are of Indian descent, but were both born and raised in Kenya under British rule and grew up in Kenya and England and then moved to the US. So I've always been interested in the world and how it functions. And as part of that, um, security issues have always been of interest to me, um, especially because um, during 9-11, I was living in New Jersey, my dad was working in Manhattan and the experience, uh, luckily he was okay, but that kind of experience was so formative just to see um, how my surrounding environment kind of took such a huge emotional and physical hit um, that I always was interested in particular in the topic of terrorism. And that then sort of led me into the nuclear space because of interest in um, nuclear terrorism.
0: And- So 9-11, you were five or six years old, living in New Jersey. Where in New Jersey? I'm, as a Jersey boy myself- Edison, New kid. Jersey, yes. Okay. Edison. Yes. And is that where you also went to high school or did you move before high school?
1: No, so after 9-11, I think um, my dad and just our family, we wanted a bit of a change uh, in scenery, I think that for a lot of New Yorkers, or those who had been there for years, that 9-11 really changed things. Um, and of course, there was a huge amount of backlash towards certain minorities um, in the United States. And I think just we needed a change. So we moved to Tampa, Florida. Um, mm-hmm. So I went to middle school and high school, and part of elementary school, of course, um, in in Tampa, Florida, which, uh, and my my middle school was called Liberty. And the uh, joining high school was called freedom. So, <laughs> okay. yeah.
0: Oh, and so that's and so that's where you're doing your debate society, and you were touching on international relations there, and then that's what got you thinking about arms control. But then specifically, you said uh, 18 was when this stuff really started to happen for you. So, what happened when you were 18? What was the specific trigger?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, you know, looking for opportunities uh, to intern or to research. And I saw something come up that the former 18th U.S. Secretary of Defense, William J. Perry, was putting together a sort of young person, next generation advisory board to help him and some of his peers, who uh, included Secretary Schultz, Dr. Kissinger, Senator Nunn, um, to figure out how to bring young people um, up to speed with nuclear threats and how to involve them more in the work to try to reduce those threats. And this was, of course, um, during the period in which the four of them, you know, known as like the Gang of Four, they came out in unison um, and wrote these quite famous op-eds that really regenerated the nonproliferation and disarmament discussions. So this opportunity that I got was extremely formative. We were a small group getting to work very closely with Secretary Perry and Secretary Schultz in particular. And I really was given a gift of getting to be under their wing and work with them then in the years that followed. And I had a frontline view into diplomacy at a really young age and getting to travel with them and, and to watch them interact with leaders from across the world and to navigate really difficult discussions, but rather successfully um, get many people to take the topic seriously and to not just do that, but to put forward a kind of vision and steps agenda on very specific topics. Um, of course, one of those topics that was of early interest, which I know is of course interest, of interest to you as well, was the CTBT. And that became probably my first major specific arms control risk reduction nonproliferation disarmament um, topic that I really delved into and spent a considerable amount of time looking at. And uh, yeah, where did you go to college? Did my undergrad at George Washington, yeah, GW in DC.
0: And did you do uh, any postgraduate studies?
1: And yes, I did my master's here in the UK uh, at Cambridge on same topic, international affairs.
0: Any uh, particular professors uh, help inspire you along the way?
1: Yeah, yeah, there's several professors that have definitely inspired me along the way. I would say the great thing about GW in particular was that many of our professors were actual practitioners that would have a full-time job at the State Department or somewhere else in the city and come in the evening and teach a night class. So I think, you know, getting to learn from not just Really illustrious, you know, Cold War statesmen like Dr. Perry and Secretary Schultz, but also people who were doing the work that they were teaching us about, um, was very important to me. And I think it also meant that uh, my undergraduate experience was more focused on really pragmatic, concrete things, you know, not necessarily on theory or um, the abstract.
0: Right. That's always a concern with. British education, right? A lot of the a lot of those programs really delve into theory, and they and they, they see policy as almost beneath the studies. But you got to do practical work.
1: Got to do practical work with a sprinkle of uh, that British kind of traditional theory and history focus. Um, I studied abroad at Cambridge during my junior year at GW, and then I returned for the masters. So I think the two put together kind of helped result in in. In my, in my viewpoints on a lot of the issues that we work on.
0: And so did you go directly from gradu- graduate school to ELN or was there an interim stop?
1: There was an interim period in which I was consulting. So I was lucky enough to be a policy and outreach consultant to the previous executive secretary of the CTBTO, Lucina Zerbo. And at the same time, I also was brought on to consult um, at the ELN on figuring out what to do um, from the European perspective in the wake of Donald Trump's exit from the JCPOA, the the Iran nuclear deal. So I was hesitant to commit to a single full-time job uh, at the outset. I had been doing so many things over the years that I was lucky that opportunities are coming my way, but I was having commitment issues in terms of picking just one. Took me about a year to realize that I thought that it was a it was better to really have that kind of formal job experience of having a full time role, focusing on a specific file, having a team, you know, going to the office, doing things like that, um, and yeah, and of course, doing little bits uh, on the side, but but really having a home base. And I chose the ELN um, primarily because I wanted to stay in London, but also because the ELN was a byproduct of those original efforts by Dr. Perry and the wider gang of four, you know, they wanted to create these leadership networks of former current and emerging leaders to really raise the profile of the threat of nuclear war and the solutions that existed to try to uh, reduce risks and get us to a place where disarmament was more possible. So I felt a personal, Connection to the organization um, and I and to its uh, genesis, and I really wanted to to, to work there. Wow. wow! And
0: then that brought you to your current job. Yes,
1: and that brought me to my current job. Um, after you know four years at the ELN, uh, working specifically on Iran, but also the wider set of arms control issues, I felt like I needed a bit of a change. You know, of course, you never once you're in the game of diplomacy with Iran. You can never quite get out of it. So of course, I'm still a senior Iran policy advisor to the ELN and routinely keep tabs on everything that's going on. But I didn't want to be pigeonholed into working on such a specific issue, especially because my interests are so wide. So yeah, the opportunity to work at CSR came at the perfect time. And I had been really itching to look at, investigate, and work especially with key governments on risk reduction. Um, you know, I had been embedded last fall in the Swiss delegation to the NPT review conference, and the Swiss, in particular, were tasked by the president of the review conference to animate, push forward the risk reduction language, and to really, you know, take that forward, um, not only amongst nuclear weapon states but also with the wider treaty community of which we had a lot of hesitant players. You know, a lot of countries from the Global South felt like falling into um, allowing risk reduction to have a higher profile would take away from their obvious priority of, pers- of, of having, of, of wanting nuclear weapon states to pursue disarmament. So making that case of um, how risk reduction and disarmament are mutually reinforcing and, and really focusing in on very concrete measures like crisis communications and, and, and those things felt like a space in which I could make a real difference. And um, the job offer actually came uh, while I was there um, at the NPT review conference. Um, so it was, it was very uh, poetic and, and, and it felt very natural.
0: Well, and that's really great work. Um, very glad you did it and congratulations. So one final question. If you could go back in time at any point during your life and or career and give yourself some advice regarding work and what you've done and where you've been so far, what would that be? I think looking
1: back, one of the things that I'm really happy that I did, which I think at the time I didn't realize um, was something that was so formative and important, was really creating deep friendships with people. Um, that were my age from different countries. Uh, whilst in university, uh, I was going to Russia a lot under the auspices of this U.S.-Russia peer-to-peer program, and it was at a time uh, after the, uh, you know, first uh, illegal in- invasion of Ukraine, where a lot of those kind of peer-to-peer programs um, had stopped. So, Borin Fulbright flex, all these kind of major peer-to-peer next-gen oriented exchanges had stopped. And we were one of the only ones that existed. And um, getting to travel to Russia at that age um, was very freeing and fun and formative um, because you got to make connections with people your age at a time when you didn't necessarily take on so much of the baggage, or you weren't so jaded, or you didn't feel the need to necessarily represent a specific position because you were working somewhere or tied to your nationality in some way. So I think uh, looking back, I wish that I had I had the opportunity to do even more of that, um, you know, and go to to other places as well. Um, for example, I wish that. Um, I had had the same um, experiences building ties and friendships with Chinese colleagues, because now we're realizing we're in an era where um, we have a really mature structure and history with with Russia, um, but that we really are a bit late in developing that same thing with China. And that's not just at a meta kind of government to government level, but that also comes down to just ordinary everyday people, students, young people. Um, So my advice, I guess, to my younger self and to others is to not take those experiences for granted and to really find ways to um, pursue more and to preserve friendships and to learn as much as possible from from others, um, you know, as, as early on as 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 then, because Um, It really does reshape your thinking in terms of how you then appreciate uh, what positions people from those countries put forward later on in your career. You sort of have a baseline understanding of, you know, where some of those positions come from, not just politically, but also culturally. And you don't really get to have that understanding unless you get to know people from those places And, and if possible, travel there as well.
0: I think that is fantastic advice. Um, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Uh, I've learned a lot about you. Um, You know, I count you as a colleague and a friend. It's always great to talk about topics of mutual interest. And I'm glad I've met you and understand more about where you come from. And we can continue the dialogue. Hope to have you back on the show someday. Thank you very much, Sahil, for being here. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. And that's all we have time for today. Thank you once again to Sahil Shah. Thank you to the EU Non-Proliferation and Disarmament Consortium for funding the podcast. Thanks as always to B. Aubrey Freeman for the excellent music. This has been William Alberg. See you next time on the Arms Control Poser podcast.
1: I repeat again. I repeat again. Repeat again. I repeat again. I repeat again.